So it feels okay to be known as Mary's dad, I guess. It just falls right into place. Well, I have the privilege of sharing another link in the summer series on the Psalms and Proverbs. We'll be looking at Psalm 24 this morning. Let me open this up in prayer and, and pray for this time. Father, we don't want to rush into a look at your word. Uh, we want first, Father, to ask that you would uh, minister to our hearts this morning. And in a sense, open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to your goodness as you show it in your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, we leave here inspired. We'd leave here with a sense of reverence for you, greater sense of reverence, and a greater appreciation and affection for you as our, as our Savior and as, as our Lord. Thank you for your word. So important, so critical to our growth, to our salvation, so critical to our relationships with others, and obviously our relationship with you. So we ask you to to bless this time by, the, by working in the power of your Spirit in each of our hearts. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 24. I became a Christian during my freshman year at American University. And shortly after becoming a Christian, I experienced a crisis. You could say I had embraced Jesus with my heart, but my mind needed some catching up. I began questioning whether there was any evidence that Christianity and its claims were true. For example, how do I know that the accounts in the Bible about Jesus are historically accurate? Or what evidence is there that Eve ate the fruit, that David killed Goliath, or that Peter walked on water? Or is the Bible simply a collection of fables and myths? I wrestled with those, time, those kind of questions early in my Christian life. These questions led me to a field of study called apologetics. Apologetics simply means, in this case, reasoned arguments for the divine authority and the divine origin of Christianity. I read books such as Evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, and set forth your case by Clark Pinnock. So by the end of my research, I was convinced that the Bible is indeed a trustworthy account of the events and the teachings of Christianity. And one of the convincing arguments was Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For example, Psalm 22 describes a crucifixion. It reads, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22 was written by David. And did you hear that phrase, they have pierced my hands and my feet? Catch this. Crucifixion was invented 
by the Persians as a means of capital punishment around 400 B.C. David lived around 1,000 B.C., 600 years before crucifixion was invented. Yet David described one being crucified. Astounding. Another example, Isaiah 53 describes a suffering servant. It reads, in part, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Sound like someone you know? Catch this. Isaiah lived approximately 750 years before Jesus Christ. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of a Messiah, an anointed one who would redeem his people. Jesus was familiar with these Old Testament prophecies. In fact, Jesus made an important statement to his followers about his life being a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He said this, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Well, Psalm 24 is one of those Psalms to which Jesus referred. It gives us three descriptions, three depictions of Jesus Christ. By the way, when you think of Jesus, what depictions come to your mind? If you're like me, you see him depicted as Savior, as teacher, as healer, and perhaps as servant leader. Psalm 24 depicts our Lord as Savior, for sure. But it also depicts Jesus Christ as the Creator and King. And those are not two depictions that came quickly to my mind until I studied this psalm. Christ the Creator and Christ the King. The New Testament writers also included Creator and King in their descriptions of our Lord. And when you add these two depictions, Creator and King, it adds a fullness and a richness to our thinking of and our feelings toward Jesus. That's what I hope we'll walk away with this morning as we look at the 24th Psalm, namely, a greater affection for Jesus Christ as Creator and a greater reverence for Jesus Christ as our King. This morning, do you see Jesus Christ as creator of all? Do you see him as king of the universe and king of your heart? Let's read the psalm, Psalm 24. It should be up on the screen. It reads this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob." 
Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Psalm 24 divides neatly into three parts. Jesus Christ, the Creator. Jesus Christ, the Savior. And Jesus Christ, the King. Look at the first two verses. They refer to Jesus Christ, the Creator. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Verse 1 reads, The earth is the Lord's and all who live in it. Why are the earth and all who live in it the Lord's? Because of verse 2. It states, For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The Lord created the earth and all who live on it. So they are His. Psalm 24, written by David and recorded in the Old Testament, states that the Lord created the earth and all who live in it. The Christians who wrote the New Testament added an important detail to this truth that David didn't know. Namely, that the one David identified as the Lord is more specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, Paul writes in Colossians, speaking of Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. The author of the book of Hebrews supports this claim. He writes, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times, and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all involved in creation. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So all of mankind belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of the fact that he created each person and ordained him or her to life. So, all mankind belong to the Lord. In a sense, Christians are twice God's possession. God created us, possession level one, and then sometime later he bought us back and received us into his family as his child, possession level two. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. This story illustrates Christians being twice gods. Once there was a little boy who made a toy sailboat. He carefully carved the hull from a block of wood and painted it blue. Then he, lifted it with a ma- then he fitted it with a mast and sails. When it was finished, he decided to try it out on the lake in the city park. It was a beautiful day. The boy, had, boy tied a cord to the front of the boat and set it in the water. The sail caught the wind and hurried the boat away. Soon the boat came to the end of the cord. But, in a, but a puff of wind blew so hard that the cord broke and the boat sailed away toward the far side of the lake. The boy cried 
but the boat was gone. Several months later, as the boy was walking through the city, he passed a pawn shop. There in the window was his sailboat. It was scratched and dirty, and the sails were torn, but it was definitely his boat. Someone had found the boat and sold it to the pawn shop owner. Now it had a price tag of $5 on it. The boy hurried home and gathered up all his money. He hurried back to the shop and bought the boat. He took it home, cleaned it up, gave it a fresh coat of paint and a new sail. Then as he looked happily at it, he said, Little boat, you are twice mine. I made you, and now I bought you. As Christians, we are twice God's possession. It's a beautiful story of what God did. Jesus Christ, the creator, he owns it all, and he owns all of us. So what are the implications to us that we are God's possessions? Here are a few of those implications. Number one, you are a property manager, not the owner of the property. You're charged with managing your life, but ownership belongs to Jesus Christ. If you're married, your union is not yours. God wants you to take good care of it. It's God's. If you have children, they are not yours. They're God's. Take good care of them. Your checking and savings accounts are not yours. Manage your financial affairs carefully. Your future is not yours. God's got a plan for your life. Your body is not yours. God created it just as he determined, and he's loaned it to you. God has entrusted to you gifts, abilities, opportunities, time, energy, intelligence, you name it, and he wants you to invest them and use them in ways that honor him and bless others. You one day will give an account of how well you managed your life, the scriptures teach. So God owns you. You belong to Jesus Christ, your creator. Not only does Psalm 24 point us to Jesus Christ, the creator, but it also points us to Jesus Christ, the savior. Look at verses 3 through 5. It reads, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Do you see the list of requirements for acceptance into God's presence? After asking the question, who may stand in his holy place, David lists four requirements. Clean hands, referring to one's actions or behavior. A pure heart, no idols, no lies. Does that list give you hope that you're able to stand in God's presence, to stand in his holy place? My guess is that you and I have similar feelings when we read this list. We sense a level of guilt and doubt because we know we don't measure up to that list of requirements. My actions are not always clean. My heart is far from pure. There are plenty of moments when I worship something other than God, whether it be worshiping success or the approval of others or financial security. 
When I look at my performance, I fall far short of deserving a place in God's presence. It reminds me of my days as a college campus minister. I once conducted a religious survey on campus. I questioned scores of students regarding their religious views. One question read, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? By the way, how would you answer that question? Almost all the students would answer the question like this. What would I say if God asked me why I should be accepted into heaven? I'd say I was basically a good person. Or others would answer, I'd say my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds. Or still others, I'd say I lived a more moral life than at least half of my friends. They were searching for different ways to justify themselves before God. That question gets at the issue, what must I do to be right with God? To have right standing with God. The biblical words for this issue are righteousness and justification. The biblical wording of this question would be, what must I do to be declared righteous in God's eyes? Or, what will justify me before God such that he accepts me into his presence? Nearly all religions answer, try to answer this question. They say, in order to be right with God, in order to be accepted by him, you must adhere to certain behaviors and rituals such as faithful attendance at religious gatherings, giving time and money to the religion, or upstanding character qualities such as honesty and charity. The closer you get to keeping all of these behaviors, the more confident you can be that you're in good stead with God. In other words, you're justified by your performance. But if you find yourself falling short of these behaviors, and we all do, you live in doubt, perhaps in fear, that you'll be disqualified from entering into God's presence. And so when I read verses 3 through 5, I feel some despair because I don't measure up. My performance disqualifies me. That's where Jesus Christ, the Savior, enters the scene. The New Testament saw Jesus Christ as the answer to this dilemma. They saw the problem of our inadequate performance to justify ourselves solved through Jesus Christ's performance. His performance of living a perfect life satisfied God's requirement for me to stand in his presence. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in essence, accomplished two objectives when he became a man. He paid the death penalty that I deserved to pay so that God could forgive me of my debt. But something else was accomplished. The Bible declares that Christ was sinless, he, that he lived a perfectly righteous life. Think of this as his resume. Jesus' resume was impeccable, meaning flawless spotless, unblemished. His life's resume granted him continuous right standing with God. When he comes into a person's life, he imputes, meaning he assigns or credits his, perform his perfect performance record to that person. 
So, not only are we forgiven, but we are seen by God as having a perfect performance record, a perfect resume. Therefore, we are righteous in God's eyes. Nothing that I do can add any value to that perfect performance record of Christ that God has ascribed or credited to me and to my account. Jesus' death took care of the negative, my sins. Jesus' life addresses the positive. He imputes his righteousness, his 100% perfect life's resume to me. By what Jesus Christ has done and now credited to me, I meet the requirements to stand before God holy and accepted by him. My falling short performance has been exchanged for Christ's perfect performance. And I simply embrace that reality. Here's a little illustration. Pardon the amateurness of this illustration. <clears throat> so here's my life's resume. George McGovern, resume, some green, but a lot of red. Here's Jesus Christ's resume. All green. When I embrace Christ as my Savior, He takes my resume and assumes responsibility for it. At the same time, He gives me His resume, not because I deserve it, but because He loves me just as I am. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange? God takes my resume onto himself. Christ takes it. And then Christ gives me his resume. And I am before God seen as holy, as righteous, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And he is imputed, he is credited to me that right standing with God, that righteousness. So, who may stand in his holy place? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one with clean hands, a pure heart, no idols, and no falsehood. We cannot add anything to Christ's resume that will make us more acceptable to God. So if you're looking to add something to what Christ has done to become more acceptable to God, stop it. Delete it. My motive for living an obedient life is not to add to what he has done for me, but rather my obedience is evidence of a life being changed by Jesus Christ. Romans 5 puts it this way, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? This means that by Christ's perfect life resume, Resume That's been credited to us. We can now draw on his life in order to live a saved life. So, have you embraced the righteousness, the right standing before God that Christ has secured for you? Have you exchanged resumes? If not, then simply express your heart to God. Simply express something like this. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. 
Thank you for assuming onto yourself my imperfect resume and giving me your perfect resume. I now see myself in right standing with you, not because of what I have added to your death and resurrection, but simply by believing that you have given me your right standing before God. So, Christ is the Creator, Christ is the Savior, and the last section of Psalm 24 points to Christ being the King. Look at verses 7 through 10. It reads this way. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. The New Testament affirms Psalm 24's depiction of Jesus Christ as king. For instance, Paul points to verse 7 of Psalm 24 as referring to Christ when he writes in 1 Corinthians, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, referring back to Psalm 24. Luke records the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. He records by saying this, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And of course, we remember the moment when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a colt, and the people spread their cloaks on the road. Luke states, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully, joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The Apostle John adds this description of Christ the King in the book of Revelation. He says this, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, and Carnelian. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and had their being. Psalm 24 is king of glory. Psalm 24 is the Lord strong and mighty. Psalm 24 is the Lord almighty, is Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, the one seated on heaven's throne receiving glory and honor and power. Jesus Christ, the King. What does it mean to us that Jesus is King? It means we have not entered into a relationship with a mere six-foot-tall Jewish carpenter who taught great lessons, healed some people of diseases, and led an exemplary life. Instead, we have entered into a relationship with the king 
of the universe. One who rules over all of what happens in the universe and what happens to each of us. One who is not limited by anything or anyone. Or one who might, right now, is being praised as creator, as savior, and as king. He's your ruler if you've bowed your heart and mind to him and embraced him as your savior and king. He comes into your life to lead you. He comes into your life for you to adore and worship. He comes into your life to empower you to tell others about him. He comes into your life as a guarantee that you will be with him in his new heaven and new earth, that he will rule perfectly. Do you honor him this morning as king of your life? Will you lay down your cloak, your life, and allow him to rule over it? Will you open the gate of your heart and invite him in to have his way? Will you open the door of your life and give him the keys to your life? There's a throne in the heart of everyone here this morning. It's the control center of our lives. It's the pilot's seat. As a Christian, we can sit on that throne or we can yield that throne to our Lord. Jesus Christ, the King, would have us yield that throne to him. As we do that, his truth and grace begin to rule our lives, which causes us to be transformed from the inside out. Psalm 24, Christ the Creator, Christ the Savior, and Christ the King.